Uh, good morning, everybody. Yes, I was outside greeting. And then someone said, you know, they're almost done in there. I think you're up. And I said, maybe I should get inside. I'm a social butterfly. I love to meet and greet with you guys. It's great when you're bringing your friends. It's been a fun week. Uh, we had men's breakfast yesterday, which is always a good time. And uh, had a bunch of guys there. And 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning, when you could be doing a lot of different things in this town, um, but a bunch of guys decided to get together and pray and hang out. And then they gave me a giant five-foot broadsword. Uh, it's lethal. Uh, it's real. And when the zombie apocalypse hits, head straight for my office and stand behind me because I got you. This is not one of those put together for $12 ones. This is, and it says on one side, uh, man of God, and then it says on the other side, Proverbs, which is going to go great when Robin now can redecorate my modern office with my yellow banana chairs, <laughs> mustard, and my 12-foot broadsword. I'm sure people will be conflicted by what I'm actually presenting in there, but... Uh, so I was thinking like, okay, here's a new thing. Instead of prayer, just regular prayer at the end of service, we could have anyone who wants to like, you know, like King Arthur, like I could bring the broadsword in and then the problem is it's an actual blade and I can just imagine myself piercing and cutting and also probably won't do that. But just know that I'd be across the street smiling with that thing. Um, it also has a very small paring knife, which is quite lethal and popped out twice on the way to my office and almost impaled my foot. So that's also another problem I'll be, be careful with. But I needed a little humor this week because church, Lighthouse Community Costa Mesa is uh, filling up the back row in heaven. And uh, there's no other nice way to put it, but right now the score in heaven is they're recruiting heavily. And, and, and we have sent our eighth, eighth man of God to join the back row in heaven this last week. And when I think about, you know, of course, I know the angels are going to send Trout and Otani over to the Dodgers because they, you want to get on the right team, right? You want to get on the winning team. Sorry about that. That's just for me and Robin. But, but I mean, Merv, I had to write it all down. Gene, it started at the beginning of the year with Gene. You guys all love Gene, our locksmith, right? He had that black police interceptor kind of to intimidate people as they're coming to church. You're like, who's that guy out? <laughs> and it was like, Gene. Gene who? Gene Katz. He, yeah, he, he's, a, he's an elder at the church. I remember the week I was hired, I got to meet him, and, I, and he does all the locks in the church, and he's, you know, super handyman. And then I saw a picture of him, and he's playing guitar, and he has this giant hairdo. And I was like, who is this guy? And Gene was a mad rocker in the 80s. I mean, a mad rocker. And then he goes, yeah, but you got to see a picture of my wife in the 80s, which she was doing. And Michelle was like a dancer on bandstand, <laughs> right? And I was just like, ah. Oh. And then she ran our, our family's ministry, and they were so awesome. And they moved to Oregon, and they came out on vacation, and Gene passed. And that was, that's it all started. Then Terry Moran, ter, not Terry Moran, Terry um, Parker, Coral and, uh, and Linda's, you know, caretakers over there. My entire ministry at this church for the last six years has been leaving the parking lot, going left two doors, and spending ministry with this man who's been in a bed for six years. I think I've been here just over six years. My entire ministry to this man has been bedside, and he's never been anything other than cheerful. And it's taught me so much. And relative to the message today, I was thinking about all the different times we sat there and 
he had one of those lucid days where some days were better than others. His body was kind of shutting down on him anyways. But he wanted to talk to me about Schlitz beer, the worst beer ever made in the history of mankind, no matter who you are, no matter what we're talking about. And he's like, you know, one day in heaven, I'm going to walk because he had lost his ability to walk. He's like, I'm going to walk around and I'm just going to have a beer. And I'm like, really, that's what you're thinking about, beer in heaven. And it's like, and it was, he just had such a great perspective of things. Robin, when we say goodbye to your husband, we say goodbye to some people that we love and care about. Simplicity of walking on the curb every week. I remember the weeks after that, just the realization that sometimes we could walk down the street and we're, it's so normal to us and it feels so great. And then the next week, like it all changes. Uh, and then it changed for Merv, like the first of the back row legends, like this cornerstone guy. And I, how did I know Merv? Well, I mean, when I got here, Gene was struggling. And so my first call as a pastor at this church was to go and spend time with Gene. And I remember pulling into their little Costa Mesa home and seeing his bug out front, see Merv go, right? And I was like, this dude's got to be cool. And his attitude and how he respected his wife in passing and how he stood vigilantly bedside with her. The same thing. I mean, she had good days. She had bad days. One day she had a lucid moment and she found a 50s Western show on. And she was so happy to watch it. She's like, sit down, Pastor. We're going to watch this thing. And me and her just watching 50s. And it was like attitude towards suffering, attitude towards pain. It was early on in my kind of pastoral career that I realized just how valuable it was. But man, Murph taught me a lot about that. And then, of course, John, this, uh, earlier this year, John is a young guy in the 40s. And you guys keep Marley in your prayer. She's still processing stuff. But, I mean, John just jumped back on the board. I just getting to know John. He lives over there by my house. Uh, it seems so young and so many different questions. I mean, um, I need that hat, that brown hat that he wears every morning, that little uh, golfing style hat. I miss, I miss seeing, you know, kind of, and, uh, and I've been wearing my armband thinking about John. Of course, Ramsey's gone home to be with the Lord. His service is going to be in January at the end of the month, and Cookie's been joining us back here. And, and Ramsey actually, uh, I guess Cookie told me, I'm going to share the story you told me this morning, Cookie. I hope it's okay. Ramsey did some visitation this week, and he wanted Cookie to know that everything's good. And, you know, church, these are the kind of things that kind of remind me between Ramsey, between Ben, Don Dickey went home to be with the Lord this year. And then last week, the final guy from the church, Joe Vieira. You guys all know Joe, my Dodger buddy. Man, Joe V. Joe was here. You guys remember when his wife, Corey, was going through it. She had some health issues, and Man, I got a chance to watch a man of God stand with his wife when she was struggling. I got a chance to watch somebody walk his wife through transplant and, and same thing that I'm facing myself coming up in my own life. And just to see Joe walk through that with Corey and then coming out of COVID and there was so much tension. And obviously, if you're a transplant person, being around other people in the fear and the day Corey walked back through that door and how triumphant that felt like, you know. I, I know where, where I'm going to be in life, and I know one of the places that's going to hold fast for me is my small community church where my people know me and love me. And then this week when I got a chance to say goodbye to my brother, just watching Corey seeing the reverse now of how she stood there and how the strength and confidence of pain and suffering and how God is asking us to process some really amazingly difficult things, right? We're, we're human. And so is the word of God have something for us? And I want you to know something. Today's passage is so specific. We're going to be in Acts 16. We're going to be in the second half, 15 through 40. We're going to learn something today. And I wanted to start by kind of just paying homage to those guys. And the same reason I'm wearing my Hawaiian shirt. Because, church, everyone in your life is going to have a chance to have influence in your life. 
The gentleman that influenced my life most significantly was a man named Dan Barber. And Dan Barber was the Charlie at my home church. He's a Vietnam vet who did a lot of really un unkind things in Vietnam. He said he did whatever he was asked to do to protect his company. Serving other people was his highest priority, and he knew that there was people that were constantly on the take for his people, and he was willing to do whatever it took. And the results of that was when he got home from Vietnam, he said he left Vietnam, but Vietnam never left him. And so he had, there was this huge conundrum in his life about struggle and pain and suffering, things that he had done. And he said, I just, I didn't think the Lord wanted anything to do with me. And somebody brought him to church one day, and the individual happened to have a Hawaiian shirt on that day. And he said something about the aloha spirit and the spirit of God just started to minister to him. And he said, you know what? I will wear a Hawaiian shirt from this day forward on every Sunday that I serve and remind myself that if not for the grace of God, there go I. He never unarmed himself. He carried Vietnam with him. He owned a gun store. And so he was heavily armed at every time. But he used to always tell me, Jeff, this is my greatest weapon. For in this, I have the opportunity to serve others and remind myself that my pain and my suffering and the discomfort that God has allowed me to live through, and I will never be able to process, I can somehow use it for the benefit of others. Jeez. I don't want to be the clump early on, but I tell you what, church, it's a, it's a struggle, right? It's a struggle to kind of see what that is. So this week, I just want you to know something. Whatever you're going through, let's say you're not a pain person. Let's say you're just a regular struggle person. Money, your marriage, communication, smoking, drinking, you have some little thing. Whatever your inconvenience is, I'm going to pray this morning, and I'm going to purpose for you something in this word of God this morning that it's so simple and so refined that you can take something home with you that's going to help you because your suffering is only for not if you don't understand suffering. In this world, you will have. You did not come to the cross to, to trade in all your sorrows and all your pains to have the best life ever. That is not the word of God. It's nowhere in the word of God to be found, and I refute it emphatically. We came to the word of God for the truth. And it's the blood of Christ that covers our sin that says, in your imperfection, I am made strong. In your weakness, I will showcase. And whatever your thing is this morning that you came in with, I'm going to offer you an opportunity this morning to leave it right here. Because there's a passage that's going to show so clearly that even if you serve God with everything you have and you pay a terrible price for doing it, it's worth it. It's only worth it for one reason, because the Word of God teaches us what to do with it. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. I'm going to pray and ask that the Lord would help us explain this passage clearly. I ask that His Spirit will guide and lead. So if you bow your head with me, we'll pray. Father God, this morning, we know that the, the back row in heaven is full of people from this church that are just showing off. They're walking, they're dancing, they're singing, they're pain-free. And all the ailments and all the things of this life that once held them down have been removed. And Father, we know that we've got a, a different perspective as believers. We know that the hug of a loved one, the, the quality conversation with someone who cares about us, we know that even coming back in this building and seeing the friendships of people saying, hey, I see you're going through something, let me carry it with you. It's always been about others, and I just pray that this morning we would have 
the proper perspective of suffering and pain and discomfort. If we, if we kind of feel like somehow it's purgatory and, and we deserve it, and so we get this martyrdom mentality that, you know, oh, woe is me. It, just, it was never you. That's never how you represented that. Of course, you asked if it could pass, then let it pass. But once you realize it was to be part of it, I can't help but feel this concept of just like embracing it. Just embracing it and saying, you know what, I'm going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But what can a shadow do to me? It can, try to, it can try to intimidate me. It can try to make me afraid. But in the end, it's a shadow. And it's called a shadow for a reason. It's a figment of my imagination. And what's the reality of my imagination is the cross covered it all. The cross has paid for it. And we don't have to live this life in fear about what the next trauma is going to be or what the next loss is going to be or who the next person that's going up. We can instead live in such a way that it's now about the glorious reunion and how much bigger and how much better that reunion's getting every day. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. And if there's someone in this building this morning that's about to hear this simple message, Father, then I pray right now in the name of Jesus, break down the walls that hold them in. Break down the walls that hold them back and live and have them live in fear when you say, I have overcome this world. May everything that we say and do in this building this morning bring honor and glory to and through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've, we've had this time where God's kind of using everything and we have to think about how we can do that because the reality is a passage like this is very specific. It's a passage that's probably familiar, the Philippian jailer. It's a story that I'm sure you've heard many times, and perhaps as part of our understanding of God's word is sometimes when I feel like I've heard something, there might be a sense to maybe kind of shut it down or think about other things. But I want to encourage you this morning that I'm going to present some things to you that hopefully you've never thought about before. The reality is this is the second mission trip. The reality is the church is just kind of growing. The reality is there's a couple of guys out on the road, Paul and Silas, they grabbed young Timothy, right? Remember we talked about the principles of going on the road. They grabbed a young buck with them so that they can kind of see what's happening. And now the author of the book has jumped in with them, Luke. And what they're doing is they're basically doing old school kind of ministry. They're finding out who has a need and where they can go. It's not what they're used to. They're used to going to a synagogue. They're used to having kind of a format that they can follow. But in, in the towns that they were in right now, they couldn't do anything but go to a riverside. They went to the riverside and they found Lydia. So the first member of this new church in Philippi is Lydia. Along the way, remember last week, we're going to find out they're going to run into this little girl. And uh, this little girl has a serious problem. She has a possession of a spirit inside of her, and it's allowing people to take advantage of her. Now, because there was not 10 men, like I said, in town to have the Jewish synagogue, they're going wherever the people are, and they're off to a good start with the people they have. But if you think about kind of what the first church is going to look like, it's going to look like Lydia and a young girl who was once possessed. By the time they get to the Philippian jailer, it's interesting to me that the church's first three people would be a woman who sells purple cloth, no husband mentioned, a young girl who's coming out of possession, and a hardened Roman jailer who's working the inner part of a jail. And yet somehow God has recruited the three of them for the first participants in the church. Let me read the first part of the passage, and then we're going to go through it line by line, as I like to do, starting in verses 16. If you want to read with me today, I think I'm reading NIV, starting in 16. So, Paul, once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave, and she had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
and she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So she, and she followed Paul and the rest of us, and she was shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. So finally, Paul just became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar. Verse 21, and by advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept the practice, and we'll talk a little bit about what that practice is. So talking about this opening sentence here, the, the, the reason why these people are upset is not because anything religious has taken place. What's taken place in their mind is revenue has been replaced with religion. And this and the idea of taking advantage of this young girl is pretty simple. You could think about all the different principles today where people take advantage of other people's pain, of other people's suffering. And so this little girl suffering in oppression so that she might reveal what is perceived as the truth. And I want to clarify something for you. It's perceived as being the truth, right? If a medium possessed by the spirit of an unclean spirit, the other side, had the ability to actually see the truth, would you rather open up a tarot business next to a donut store? Uh, you see our tarot business at the end of the street there. The pot store is doing so well now, there's no room for the tarot business, so they have to close in tough times in Costa Mesa. Church, if the tarot business was doing good, if the tarot business could actually tell you the truth, yes, <laughs> would they tell themselves what the lottery numbers are? Recently, we've had billion-dollar lotteries, right? Would they tell themselves the billion-dollar lottery numbers and then spend the rest of their life in the Bahamas sending you postcards? Or would they take your $16 an hour and then tell you some generic principles and hope it somehow works out? Nowhere in the Bible does it say they're telling the truth. It's always perceived. Remember, the devil is the master of the airwaves. Sound, right? Telling you what you want to hear often is a simple, what they call a self-fulfilling prophecy. A lot of you want to hear certain things. And to, and to have someone to tell you something doesn't mean they're telling you the truth. You, your ears want to be tickled, right? This is a sign of the end times. People want their ears tickled. And so to go pay someone to tickle their ears is simply a... It's, a, it's a profitable. It's been profitable from the beginning. But once that spirit is identified and removed and they're not able to have that revenue come in anymore, it's a serious problem. And for these two guys, it's going to turn out to be a life-changing problem. But one of the first principles that this exposes is that pain and suffering have value. Right? The pain and suffering that this little young person is going through is being harnessed and utilized for monetary gain. Is that any different than human trafficking? Right? These concepts of how this stuff works is, is something. So they've stolen a principle that we need to release back to us in its biblical understanding because we're seeing pain and we're seeing suffering as some kind of punishment for being sinners. 
Look, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Whether you, uh, have you said it lately or not? Maybe it's time to get, take a little mirror challenge. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. There is none righteous, okay? With that in mind, that doesn't mean you deserve certain things. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and sometimes good things happen to bad people. Lots of life is filled with that, and if you're going to spend your time trying to contemplate why, you're wasting a ton of time. This little medium, I don't know how she got into it, but she's in it, and it's happening, and now all of a sudden she sees, and these two guys, well, it's probably four originally, but at least Paul inside, she sees something in them, and the evil inside of them wants to attack, but how do you attack when you don't have the truth the truth that's being presented. How about if you present the truth as well? And now the conflict is going to be, what was she saying? What was she shouting? She shouted at them, these are the guys from the Most High who are telling you how to be saved. Talk about deceit and turning it around. She's joining in with them, right, to create like, yeah, I'm on the same side. Maybe the power is from the same place, which is going to be a reason why that this is such a problem, okay? This is going to be a problem which ultimately turns into the annoyance that Paul has is because he doesn't want people to associate the truth teller with the truth that he's telling. There can be no association with dark and light. And because of this, this principle is that that suffering, there's a value in suffering. It reminds me of this kind of that second. So with that suffering, what are you going to do? Because the suffering will either allow gain or destruction. Okay, this is the James principle that talks about the words of your mouth. Everything that comes out of your mouth, it either builds up or it breaks down. Everything, okay? There's no way for you to accidentally say something. I have a minor in sociology. It's a very interesting degree. I didn't want it. I didn't need it. I didn't ask for it, but I use it all the time. One of the principles I learned in that sociology degree is 50% or more of what is said in jest is actually a true, subliminally speaking. But it's so uncomfortable to state that you'll simply say it in jest to see what the response is. So be very careful about what you say in jest. Because you're allowing your brain to speak to see how the response is. But we don't talk for no reason. We don't say things for no reason. Everything we say is for a reason. And I'm asking you to realize something that if you're going through pain and you're going through suffering and you're shooting things out, you're either building up or you're breaking down. And you're missing the value of the pain that has been given to you. Now, she's demon-possessed. And obviously that's a problem. And what she believes and what she thinks she's doing, she's not doing, right? So does a demon-possessed person have the ability to speak truth? Yes and no right? Depending on the situation. She's saying these are the men that can say that's actually truth. But did she have the truth to convey in the thing? Chances are probably not. She was just speaking general principles. Well, how about this? Can a believer be possessed? Is it possible for something like this to kind of step into our life and the pain and suffering that we go allow us to be possessed? No, absolutely not. A believer cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. Why? Greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. Okay, church? Basic principles where we got to know who we are and we got to know how we stand. Oh, pastor, I'm being oppressed. Yes, you can be oppressed, but you cannot be possessed. 
That's important to you because the oppression comes from Ephesians 6 and says, We wrestle not with those things seen, but of principalities in dark and light. You're driving down the road, you're minding your own business, you're on the 10 freeway, you want to go play golf, it's Palm Springs, and you see a billboard that's like complete pornography. You didn't ask for that. You didn't put that up. You're not trying to suggest something to your mind. You're a man, you're a woman, you're whatever in your mind, and you look up at it and you think, I don't need to see that again. Is it a sin to inadvertently see something, or does the sin come when you look back and confirm what you saw? Right? To me, that's oppression. If I'm minding my business and I'm doing my own thing, the pain and the discomfort of this world is trying to distract me. But the sin comes when I look back to it. Don't look back to it. The oppression is trying to simply distract you. Keep your eyes on the road, stay focused on the 10, and get to that golf course. That's your destination, right? The oppression is all around us because that's all he can do. If the devil could win, he would win. If the devil had something to say, he would already say it. We already know what he has to say. He is the father of lies. The reason why our world as we see it is going to hell in a handbasket is because we're buying into lies. You know, AI is moving at an all-time record pace. It's already been established pretty clearly that you can take any personality that is existing in the world today and make audios or videos of them talking and speaking and saying things that are not real. We are going to fall face first into a million different new conundrums and lies because they're going to utilize the pain and the suffering of this world to convince us. And that is oppression because we cannot be possessed by that spirit because Jesus' spirit is living in us. The spirit of God is living in us. So hold fast in that and understand what the purpose is. What's the purpose? Remember, the purpose was for many days she was trying to annoy them. Maybe every time they tried to share, she was yelling this out. That's the whole point, distraction of what the devil's trying to do. He's trying to distract you from doing what? What were they trying to do? Share faith. Show faith. Live faith, right? Go, make, baptize, teach. There's only one thing that we're supposed to be doing. If you're trying to do that above everything else, you can be assured that as you raise your game, the other side's going to raise the intensity and the noise. She's yelling, and she's yelling, and she's yelling, and here's a man of God, <clears throat> and he got annoyed. Now, I don't know about you, but I love to share my little detours in my brain when it happens, because like, I'm so grateful that the men of God, the guys that the Word of God wrote down, get annoyed. Do you get annoyed? I get annoyed that I get annoyed. Because I'm a man of God. Why I shouldn't be? No, it's okay. It's okay for us to struggle. They got annoyed. He's just trying to share. He's just trying to mind his business. So the idea that when you're sharing with someone and someone's holding up a sign and hey, yeah, 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 and you get annoyed, it's okay. Other people in the Bible have experienced that. But there's a way to respond and a way to understand. Part of what we need to understand is everything's happening for a reason. The reason is if you're trying to share, show, and live God. The other side has to amplify because they don't have any, any ammunition against that. You okay, Jackson? I know that cough. Good. Perfect. Here's what I want you to do the next time you feel the annoyance coming. Hold. Stop. Time out. Adult time out. Hold. Deep. In through the nose. Pregnancy breath. Breathe. And I want you to go to your strongest attack. Prayer. Lord, you know what I'm trying to do right now. You know what I'm trying to say. 
in the name of Jesus, whatever this attack is, you work on that. You quiet the noise. May, may the words that I'm trying to say and the thing I'm trying to communicate, may you help me, help me to fight through with that, Father. You show yourself to be good in this situation, right? The greatest attack that you have, the greatest weapon that's been given to you is prayer. Hold fast, realize the oppression's coming in, and because they know there's gain and suffering and pain, if they can irritate you enough to maybe you slip up and now you say something or you cuss or you start getting frustrated and you lose focus of what you were trying to share, they win. This is a Roman colony, by the way. This is not some happy-go-lucky place. This is a Roman colony. So whatever's about to take place in Philippi is not going to be like it was anywhere in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the laws, rules, and regulations were always designed around protection of the Jewish people. Same thing is going to be true in this Roman colony. But to be a Roman is very difficult. To actually have citizenship is a very difficult thing to happen. And because of that, if something bad happens in a Roman colony, there is no rules and regulations to protect you if you're not a Roman, which is going to be really interesting when we find out why they don't protect themselves when they're accused. All right, let's move on to verse 19. When the owners realized that the money was gone, they seized them, okay? They seized them and they brought them and they made these accusations. These men are Jews. Now, it's 2,000 years later, and when I read that this week, there was, a, there was a level of kind of just like accusatory just in the statement alone. And you know what? I kind of feel like today in the world that we live in, that those four words are still just as offensive. These men, these, these women, these people are Jews. As if by saying... Just that enough is reason enough to say that's the problem. All they did was remove someone who was in pain and suffering and torment. All they did was remove something from them that freed that person to live a life. And for that now, not are they being accused, but they're being accused from where they come from. I feel like the same thing's true when people say you're a Christian. It has that same negative connotation like, what do you expect? I hope we're not living in such a way that we're giving people a reason to say, oh, because you're a Christian, something's wrong. I hope they're saying it because because you're a Christian, you're not going to give in and fight the way that they fight. I hope they're realizing that the pain and suffering that God has given you is not going to make you want to stand in front of an abortion center with a sign and yell, you're going to hell. By the way, there was, there's an abortion, there's a couple of them throughout the town, and I remember having to drive for a period of time by one. And it was interesting to me, the signs and the people that spent all their time out there. You know, if Jesus showed up in Costa Mesa or in town, and, and I'm, there's abortion centers still here, do you really think that's where he's going to go? Do you, see, do you see Jesus standing in front of an abortion center holding a picture, a horrific picture? Do you see it? it it's impossible to see. So who are we as iron to sharpen other iron to allow that to happen? The next time you drive by something that doesn't make sense, would you, instead of just letting it be, would you find a place to safely pull over and would you pray? Remember the strongest power you have against principalities of dark and light? Lord, I just don't see that being the way to communicate what you're... If they don't know God and they're doing things against God, is that really offensive? Because I'll tell you what's offensive to me, is that you say you know God, and I say I know God, and then me and you do something that's offensive. What's more offensive? 
a believer who knows what God's word says in Acts of Faith, they don't know God and they're just confirming they don't know God. Is that how we want to communicate? You don't know God and you're going to hell in a handbasket with a sign saying you're killing unborn babies because they don't know the value of, a, of an unborn baby. They don't realize how precious life is to Jesus. We do. I hope you do. Why is every form of malice that happens towards a child somehow centered around some type of occultic understanding? Why would you take advantage of a child? Because that's just it. You're taking advantage. It's oppression. It's using suffering and pain for malice, for gain, for evil gain. It's just not right. It's not biblical. And so they're yelling and they're shouting and they're trying to distract and they're trying to do everything and they're basically just making accusations that you're Jews, that's, that's weird enough. And the bottom line is you're, you're causing us to lose money from something that's significant to us <clears throat> and on top of that, you're talking about a foreign god. So this is a, an official charge, by the way. In a Roman colony, it's illegal to talk about any other god than any god that's been approved of by the Roman, God, Roman uh, authorities. So that, that is a true charge. But to the degree that that's what they were doing at the time, they weren't necessarily talking about that. All they had done is removed, remember, they removed the spirit. They, pr they pronounced Jesus' name over it, and they removed the spirit. And they're not making that accusation. It's the loss of revenue, ultimately, that sends them into this. They need to be punished. And keep reading and kind of tear the rest of this apart. 22. So why did they do this? 22 through 28. Now the crowd joins in and attacks Paul and Silas. And now the magistrate orders them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they're thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received the orders, he put them in the inner cell and then fastened their feet in stocks. I got some details on that little scenario as well. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken at once. And the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But then, verse 28, Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. This is... This is incredible stuff to me. See, Paul and Silas are actually Roman citizens. Why aren't they calling out from the very beginning unfair? No, we're Romans. Maybe they were. Maybe the crowd was just so loud they didn't have a chance to hear them. But whatever it is, the crowd is now kind of going into this mob mentality and we're trying to figure out why Paul would even allow this to happen. The cool thing is that since Paul wrote so many different books in the Bible, he got a chance to write about this later, about what this actually meant to him. I found this interesting. I found this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He wrote, We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of God, we dared to tell them about his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Why is suffering such an incredible thing? Because suffering leads to opportunity. Suffering leads to opportunity. See, there's no tear wasted in your life. There's no pain wasted in your life. There's nothing that God is asking you to go through for no reason. 
I remember when I first got to the church six years ago, one of the first things I thought was very difficult was a staff member named Jeannie. You guys all know Jeannie. Jeannie and Charlie usually sit around here. Jeannie was going through cancer, and she was going through a really difficult time. And when you lose your hair and you go through all these different things, it's a real challenge to kind of process how God's using that. And I watched her go through it, and then I watched her beat it, and then I watched her come out of it. And one of the things that I thought was just awe-inspiring from that was she found a book about every known cancer. We ordered plenty of these, right? Every known cancer that exists is documented in her little book that she has. She bought copies of it, and every known cancer has been beaten in prayer, completely alleviated in prayer. And that's what she has done with what God asked her to go through to help her process the pain and the suffering. And the value that's now been created from that is whenever there's someone in the church, I usually find her and Cindy Washburn, which I don't see Cindy on the side, but Cindy and her will then go and have this great ministry where any person going through cancer has an advocate and someone to share with. Our response to suffering, this is principle number three, our response to suffering determines the outcome okay god is not laying it on you as punishment god is not laying it on you because you've done something wrong but god is laying it on you as an opportunity to say what do you want to do with it if you realize that what what anyone wants to do with cancer is get rid of it but when cancer comes your way it's funny uh, my grandfather smoked and drank for many many years he was not a follower of the lord and then one day he came to the Lord, and he ended up living until late in his 90s, never had an issue with cancer one day in his life. Amen? Other people never touched a cigarette, never done anything in their life, and they go out in the sun a few times or whatever it is, and they get skin cancer, right? Other people have just been around people from secondhand smoke or in their building or whatever, and they get cancer. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to any of that. To spend the rest of your life trying to explain rhyme and reason to someone, but if you could explain to them, hey... I don't know how you got it. I don't know why you got it. You got it. But what are we going to do with it? And how are we going to let it affect us? What is the outcome of this scenario that God has allowed us to participate in? Because the reality is, when you suffer, what we learn in this passage right here is people will watch and listen. You ever notice why in California the term rubberneck, you guys rubbernecking in California? That's us. There's a weird phenomenon about us, but we as Californians love a good car accident. The fact that I'm going down the 91 at a 80 to 70, 85 miles, now, whatever the legal speed limit is, and I see something on the other side, the only time I'm willing to slow in the number one lane is when there's a good accident, right? And we drive by, and we just, we're fascinated by the idea of pain and suffering and smashing and what's i don't it's weird things that we do right we do this am i the only one doing this no we, we do this people are watching it's something about our dna we're we're programmed to watch but you know what's more shocking than going by that as a chaplain is being in that accident or that i'm driven in a police car to that accident and one of the amazing facets that god has allowed me a privilege of which are probably two or three in my chaplaincy but recently, the most recent one was on Newport, uh, Newport Boulevard, and a mom, uh, soccer mom with all her kids gets in an accident, someone running the light, middle of the day, probably drinking, and the kids were, it was so 
shockful and dramatic. But see, the police get on the scene, and all they, they have to control the thing, find out the insurance. They, they're not really there for any of that stuff. But now when you drop me off as the chaplain, guess who I sit with? Just the kids. The shock and awe of life, right? The shock and awe of pain and suffering. Someone needs to help them process that. Someone needs to realize something. And just to sit and to listen and to watch them kind of process that is a total blessing. And sometimes I'm at an accident and you just see hysteria. Some people are just, especially their first accident. If you find a teenager, 16 to 20, in their first car accident, it's hysteria. That's just the common response. Probably because they're worried what their parents are going to think, right? I mean, there's a lot of different reasons for that. But they've never been through that. They've never experienced that. Because pain and suffering, it evokes this overwhelming flow through your body, and you don't know what to do with it. But when we watch these guys go through pain and suffering for something that they didn't do that was necessarily malice, it was actually good, but it's perceived as malice because they've lost revenue, we're going to find out how they deal with it. So your response to suffering determines the outcome. And don't forget principle four, that when you are asked to go through that, when you are asked to be involved with that, people will be watching and listening diligently. What does it tell us? It tells us that God's not wasting anything. Let's move to verse 26 and keep reading. So what were Paul and Silas trying to teach and show us? We're getting to the main thing, how suddenly there was an earthquake and the foundations of the prisons were shaken. All at once the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, was going to kill himself. He drew his sword. He thought the prisoners had escaped and then they shouted, do not harm yourself, we're all here. First of all, did you notice it was an earthquake where everything blew up and everything was destroyed but the people? Don't read the Bible so fast. Now, I talk fast on Sundays because I'm trying to cover a lot of material in my brain, but don't read the Bible so fast that when you catch something like that, and you're like, huh? Go back and read it again. God can make an earthquake happen where everything around you is destroyed, including your chains. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty. Your chains fall off and your doors open, but somehow when it's all done shaking, you're just sitting there and you're perfectly fine. Like, are you really worried about what God's in control of? You shouldn't be. He's in control of everything. And it's all working for a reason. Now, there's another time in the last chapter when the jail broke down and Peter left. Remember? He went home and knocked on the door and then the servant girl's like, hey, someone's at the door. And they're like, who? And like, it's Peter. It's like, no, Peter's dead. No, he's not. He's at the door. Remember that? He left. Now here's Paul and Silas, and the same kind of scenario is happening. God's showing once again that he can remove the chains that hold us back, and they don't leave. Everything in life is not the same. Everything in life does not have absolute kind of principles on it. Sometimes you have to listen to the Spirit of God, and what the Spirit of God made perfectly clear to them is do not leave, so that when they see the jailer drawing the sword, he's drawing the sword, it's a Roman colony, he's on the inner jail, okay? Outer, middle, inner. The inner is for the heart, worst people, right? He's the hardest guy there is in there. He's the toughest jailer there is. He's watching the worst people. He's not going to make himself subject to the claim. So in Roman, uh, Roman law, if people escaped and they were under your watch, then you suffered their penalty. That's why this whole thing with Jesus guards um, when the tomb was robbed, that doesn't happen like that. Those guards were assigned to that tomb, should have never left. He's like, the jail's open, everyone's gone. I need to, I'm done with this. They're going to kill me. And their first response is that this pain and the suffering and everything they've been through is not only for others, but now they actually see the person who it's for. 
If you're lucky enough to find out who your pain and suffering is for, may God bless you this morning. Maybe one of the prayers you just need to pray this morning is, who is the person in my life that I have watched go through pain and suffering that has influenced me? Like Dan's pain and suffering of Vietnam and the mental struggle and strain that he went through, it had influence on me. I hope to share with you my struggle. I don't make it personal every week, but I am definitely trying to share with you whenever I get to go through it, the joy that I have and the struggle that I'm going through. Uh, This week, I had a chance to go in a little bit later on one of my dialysis. I wasn't feeling well, and so a whole group of people that I used to see and I haven't seen in a long time, I walked in, and, and it was like shock and awe on their face. They thought I had got a kidney and that I was done. And so me walking back into them was that my kidney was failing, and so there was this kind of sense of compassion from my fellow dialysis patients, and I had to basically go from each one and comfort them and saying, no, I just changed times. It's okay. Everything's good. Comforting others with our pain, purposing our suffering for others, and now him realizing, I see the person who it's for. It's for the jailer. This whole situation, the beating, okay, Jewish law, 40. Maximum beats, whips, hit 40. Jesus, 40 stripes, right? Roman law in a Roman colony, no number. When it says they were beaten violently back in the beginning, I'm sure they were pulverized. Beaten and battered, sitting with their face all bludgeoned, in a jail, in an earthquake, and what are they doing? Singing praises and praying right? Those people were watching. They didn't know who was watching. They knew that captive audience, amen, right? I mean, captive audience, you're in jail. Somebody's watching. So how can we use this for God's glory? In my beaten, battered state, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to allow God to somehow see this and do something with this that's beyond my seriously uh, spoken pay grade, spiritually speaking, and I'm going to replace death with life. You know, Glenn, when you told me that thing about trunk or treat, when you said on, you came out of your house and it was all dark and you could see the people kind of moving down to the church, that has helped so many people see the church and like what we are. We are a light in a dark place. The greatest value of, dark, of light is when you're in a dark place. Now, one of the cool things about going to men's retreat and being on a mountain is absence of light and realizing just how much light pollution we have in our life. But one of the things I don't like about absence of light is it's really kind of terrifying to be in a forest at night and realize you can't see anything in front of you, right? And then the value of your little phone light becomes like imperative. You're like, oh, Lord, what am I battery at? That's what we are. In a dark, dark world, they see that light. They see that thing. They're going through that thing. Uh, I I know Corey's here this morning, and Corey, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I mean... I see my buddy struggling. I see him breathing. I see him struggling. And I'm, I have this thing about toes. I don't know what it is. I just stand at the end of the bed, and I'm praying, and I'm like, Joe, I love you, bro. I, I release you, man. You have fought such a good fight, bro. I love you. His daughter's there. And then I look up, and there's this radiance coming off of Corey, and she's just like, you got this. You're going to get a kidney. You're going to have problems with your medicine. I'm going to walk you through this. I'm going to call your wife. I'm going to do this and that. I was just like, man, what we do with our pain and our suffering and how we use it to serve others and how we see the value of what's going on, it's so significant. It's so powerful. And when you get to see the Roman jailer who's about to take his life and you realize you weren't beaten for no reason, you didn't deserve that beating. You were beaten for a reason. 
So that you could, because you know who's in a worse position than you? Is the Roman jailer who's going to die and go to hell. Right? You're beaten, and you're bruised, and you're battered, but you will be restored. And none of our back row is beaten and battered anymore. And their proof is peace. And now they see the whole point of it. It was for him. For that, 1 Corinthians 9, for that, the rich I become rich, to the poor I become poor. I become all things to all people so that what? For the one. And now I see the one. And now I'm motivated. Okay, Lord, what is the significance of this one? The jailer does something amazing, verse 29, 30. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I tell you what, standing in front of that clinic, you're going to hell. I mean, anytime someone has a sign and says, you're going to hell, and I'm like, really? Like, that's what you want to convey to them. Where was that here? What part of any time being beaten, mistreated, anything, inner jail, are they yelling at them, you're going to hell? Like, this is what you want to do. If this is how you want to treat me, then treat me. I'm going to show you something that has been shown me, a love and respect that has been shown me, that I think is more powerful and more significant. And the result of that life purposed that pain and that suffering and the understanding of how everything we do determines the outcome. He's coming, the jailer, okay? He's coming to them saying, what must I do? He found out what they were in jail for. He knew what they were talking about. Whose verbiage is this? I don't even see that there was a conversation that they even mentioned saved to him. But he knows now, what must I do to be like that? To be saved. You obviously have something that nobody else in this jail has. And that is what I want, sir. What must I do for that? They should be clamoring to come into this building on a Sunday. They should be clamoring wherever they are when they hear this on the internet or whatever. They should be clamoring to ask for forgiveness of their sins and be cleansed by the blood. What can wash away, the bl- what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, church. Okay? What does, he, what does he have to do? He says, okay, I see the situation. I'm responding to you guys. What do I need to do? I'm not wasting one more second. I'm coming to you. I'm asking you, what must I do to be saved? Does that sound familiar to you? Because if you look throughout the word of God, what must I do to be saved starts to become a familiar phrase. I would just remind you, you don't need to do anything that Jesus has done at all. But what you need to do is is confess your sins to Jesus. You need to acknowledge that Jesus is knocking on your door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. You need to open the door. You need to finish the transaction. But is there a right way and a wrong way? I'll tell you what, right now in the world we live in right now, the the gospel has never been more watered down than it is right now. You are watching, you are a generation watching the the, the total whitewashing of of our faith. People have washed our faith down to people who can speak on a Sunday for an hour and a half and not even mention Jesus or even read a Bible verse. 
There are churches actively teaching this Sunday that will have 45 minutes of music and five minutes of message because they don't want to inconvenience their parishioners. Okay? We're doing everything we can to wash it all down and somehow make it palatable. Nowhere in the Word of God does it ever say, in the end times, you're going to need to do that to make it receivable for them. I won't do that. I hope you will never allow us to do that here. We're sinners. We have issues. We need to confess our sins, and we need to realize we're covered in the blood of Christ, and that's all we have to stand on. His death, his burial, and resurrection. And this guy's figured it out. A hardened jailer has figured it out. Nobody watered down anything for him. Every blow that they took, it's possible he was part of the group that delivered him. He knows the blows that were given. Nothing needs to be done to reconcile a sinner to the Lord. Just live in such a way that that sinner gets to see common ground in you and that you get to do something differently that they don't have. That is your greatest draw to bringing someone into the kingdom of God. Your neighbors will clamor to get in this building when they see something different in you, when your family members see something different in you, because the proof of salvation is not the prayer of salvation. The prayer of salvation changed all throughout the Bible. Pastor Jeff, I just want to tell you, I heard someone pray, and they prayed without confessing, and they prayed without this, and they prayed without this, and this, this pastor is teaching this, and this. I'm sorry. You're not going to go to the Bible and see one perfect prayer and only do this prayer for salvation, right? The thief on the cross destroyed that. He destroys it. Remember me? Are you kidding me? Remember me hanging on the cross. That's it. No, I apologize. I need. I'm sorry. I confess. I do. I will. Nothing. Remember me. And the very guy who's responsible for salvation affirms, today, check it, today you will be with me in salvation. The woman with blood issues, 12 years of having blood issues, you don't think she knows what's going on and the difficulties of pain and suffering and discomfort in her life? But she knows that this Jewish guy walks through the street with his posse at certain periods of time, and in her mind she thinks, if I could just walk by and touch the fringe of his garment, the torn pieces of the outer garment, if I could just touch the fringe, I would be healed. The posse goes down the street, she walks by, she reaches out, and she touches the fringe. And what does Jesus do? Halt, stop. I get all the people around us, something just happened. What do you mean, Jesus, something just happened? There's a zillion people. This is, this is awkward. No, something went out of me. Went out of you? That's a bizarre statement. By the way, it was believed that when Jesus walked down the streets of Jerusalem, that if you couldn't get to Jesus because you were in such an impaired state, that the Shekinah of Jesus was the literal dust that came up from the cloud as they walked down the street. And as the Shekinah Jesus settled, if you could get to the dust, healing was waiting. Is it the words you say that made you saved? No. Everyone says different words. It's a, every time I pray it with you, it's different. Lord, have mercy. Please stop calling me. It's different for everyone. But since I can't save anyone and you can't save anyone, then let's let the prayer that someone prays be between them and the Lord. Instead, let's look for this, the, what happens afterwards. Because something happens every time someone prays when it's a real conversion that's instantaneous. You know what it is? A dead heart starts beating. You can't fake that. 
You can't fake new life. You're dead without Christ. You can't understand the things of God. You're dead. It says you're dead. And then it says you become a new creation in Christ. Why? Because he, he recreates in you something that's lost. The Spirit of God now living inside of you allows you to see things and understand things. About what? About the pain and suffering that he's been asking you to go through. For what? For the Philippian jailer that's in your life. He's going to take his life. But yeah, but I've been beaten and I've been suffering and I have seven aortic heart things and three myelinomas and two carcinogens. I don't care what you have. In this life, you will have and you have it. And so now here's how you're going to deal with it. You're going to purpose that pain for someone else. And when you purpose that pain specifically for someone else, what you're saying is I'm living outside of myself. I'm living for others. I'm living as an example of how to serve in my pain. And what is the results? The results, game, set, and match, verses 31 through 40. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and was washed, and he washed their wounds. And immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer then brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And when it was daylight, the magistrate sent the officers to the jailer and ordered, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said, they offers, they beat us publicly without even having a trial. Even though we're Roman citizens, they throw us into prison. And now they want us to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrate. And now when they hear that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they became alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them out of the prison, requesting that they only leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house. Remember, she's the first convert. They went to Lydia's house, and they met with the other brothers and sisters and encouraged them as they left. There's a couple of different things happening here. This is, now they just found out they're Roman citizens. It's a problem for them. See? Roman citizenship is very difficult to obtain. Very difficult. And the fact that they have it, and they're not just Jews, magicians, right? These people that need to be problem removed. They're Romans. The Roman law prohibits you doing anything to a Roman citizen without fair trial. They, the magistrate, have broken their own laws at a higher degree of charge than what they accused. And now the table has turned, right? Now Paul and, Paul and Silas, they got them. And they're saying, you know what? Here's what we're going to do with this situation. We're going to allow God to use this because we realize, although the table is turned, as Christians, we're to be under the government. Now, you wonder why, why he wrote some of this stuff in the Bible. We're supposed to be in, under the government. We're, the government's supposed to be taking care of us. Well, what happens when the government doesn't take care of us? Then he calls the government out and says, no, we're not leaving quietly. Send them to us and have them escort us out. By the way, under Roman law, this would have been how it would have been. So you're accused of a crime. The crime is then substantiated. You're beaten, thrown in jail for one day. And then the following morning, you're escorted out of town. You're no longer allowed in the town and you have to leave. 
So they were trying to follow the Roman law in the beginning. Now as it comes to escorting them out of town the following day to find out they're Roman citizens and they've broken their own laws, the whole system's crashing and burning. But Paul and Silas are willing to leave peacefully. Paul and Silas realized something that in the end, this whole thing for them was one thing. For the magistrate and for the government, it was one thing. But for them, they're starting to see with perfect clarity what it was all about. Everything that happened, happened for a reason. And the reason was the Philippian jailer. Church, I don't want you to think that I'm going to simplify your life for you, but I want you to realize something, that everything that's happened in your life has been for a reason. If you haven't stopped to ask what that reason is, then maybe this morning is a great time to ask because the loss of something significant in your life is not meant to be a punishment to you. The loss of something significant in your life is meant to be a privilege for you to fill that void with Jesus, replace that heartache with Jesus, and now look for others in life who are continuing to struggle and dealing with loss and now be their confidant and be their advocate. Because that's as good as it gets in life, is that we're here to serve others. And when we can do that, we get to claim back something that's been stolen from us, you know? Genesis 9, 6, the first promise from God was a rainbow. Really? In Genesis 9, 6, what happened? Yeah, because he flooded the earth, right? His anger was like, I can't believe my people have done this for everything I've done. I've got to wipe this whole thing out. And a rainbow comes, Roy G. Biv, you know, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, and... We're so excited to see that. And what does it mean? I'll never do this again to you. This incredible attribute of God given to human beings by God. And now when we see it, we have to think of what? Homosexuality? Like, we've, seriously, we lost this? Have we lost something to what God's word has said? It's like we, we lose things continually. We lose things. Someone this morning, I had, I had a conversation with someone. I don't remember. Yeah, I won't say your name, but... Are you tired of losing things? How would you like to get something back? How would you like to get something back? A biblical perspective of what that rainbow means. That rainbow is from God. It is a promise, a covenant between him and you that he will never flood the earth again. And every time you see one from now on, don't confuse yourself on what it is, turn it or whatever. It's been stolen. Everything will be reconciled one day. Everything will be returned one day. And right now, another component of the Christian life is pain and suffering and this whole idea that everything that we're going through is somehow doom and gloom and we're all a bunch of martyrs. What did Jesus say about the person who prayed saying, oh, I'm fasting today, you know, I'm covered in ashes, just give me some space, I'm fasting. When you fast, do it in what? Secret. Church, I know you're going through pain. Some of you I know better than a lot of other people. I know you're going through pain, even myself sometimes. But there's a way that we can do it, and ultimately what this is showing us is it's for the Philippian jailer. Let's find the Philippian jailers in our life, and let's focus that for him, it was worth it. How do we know it was worth it? Did you see one of the first things he do? He washed their wounds. He's in charge of them. You don't wash prisoners' wounds. That's going to be a problem for him. At some point later on, if someone can identify that the jailer, he doesn't care anymore. Why doesn't he care anymore? Because he's been made a new creation in Christ. He sees things new. He can understand things anew. And now him and his whole family are going to come into salvation. That is one of the amazing things about salvation. It will not just affect you. It will affect your family. They beat us. They took advantage of us. Somebody better come down here. Somebody better say, 
before you leave to Thessalonica, before you move on, we're sorry for what we've done. And what Paul and Silas are realizing is now there's going to be another opportunity in this injustice that they might actually stand before a Roman magistrate one day. And you know what? That's another purpose in this whole thing. The injustice of this whole situation is they're now going to have an opportunity to continue to plead their case. Their case is that Jesus loves you and he has something to say. And wherever we can go and whatever we can do to share that with people, we're going to continue to do that. They came, they appeased them, they move on down the road, they discuss their Roman citizenship, and now they realize they got us. Do they use that to twist it and kind of contort it and kind of take advantage of it? No, they lead in peace, and then Paul later writes. I love the fact that some of these passages you guys get to read, you can now read them in sight of when they came from. He wrote this later on in 1 Peter 2. Servants, be respectful even to your masters who are unjust. For they are to endure unjust treatment graciously, as Christ did. They are not to echo their oppressors' insults and condemnation, but rather trust God, who is the ultimate judgment. The final principle that I want to share with you this morning is that we can trust God from start to finish with our pain, that it was intended to be used for his glory. Trust God from start to finish that whatever he's asked you to go through will be used for his glory, right? If you, could, if you could realize every time you have to take your medicine or do whatever it is that you have to do, that every time you do that, you're reminding yourself, okay, I'm broken. I'm going through this whole thing they call life, but I'm going through it for a reason. I'm taking this medicine. I'm doing these things I don't want to do. So that I can get up and go out into that world because someone in my world, the grocery store lady that I always talk to, the restaurant that I always eat at, the waitress who always comes by, right? You, don't make it complex and whatever. Uh, I noticed this morning as we were kind of meeting in front, somebody was walking by, just a gentleman was walking by. It was, I think it was Glenn. It was you. You're on my mind this morning. And a neighbor walks by. Well, Glenn lives on the street, so it was one of his neighbors. Boom, in the middle of the street. Embrace him. Like, to me, there's some things that we can do about being alive and being aware and just realizing that the opportunity to speak to the Philippian jailer is all around us. If we just realize that's what the goal is. You're in school, you're doing some different stuff, thinking about some other people I talked with this morning. They're all around you. Well, it has to be my roommate because that's the one gave us. No, it doesn't have to be a roommate. It could be the cafeteria person that feeds you food every day and has this look on their face like, I hate you and I'm wish I was somewhere else in the world. And as they slop your food on there, you just say, hey, I know this is a difficult job, but you know, thanks for giving us something to eat. Like We don't know how we're affecting other people's lives. We don't know what other people's pain and suffering is doing to them. And we don't know if other people have the name above all names to go to and to turn to, to process that. And the privilege that we have is saying, hey, look, I know what it's like. I come from a long line of alcoholics. In my family, it's deep. It's generational. There's a reason why I choose to drink tea and to drink water. Not because I can't or I shouldn't. I just choose not to. Because I've seen the pain that something that's quote-unquote enjoyable has caused. Well, that's kind of funny to me because what I chose to drink was Diet Coke. And I put a Coke machine in my youth room and drank six of them a day. And now I'm on dialysis, and I can't drink Diet Coke anymore. 
Be careful for the things that you think you're substituting in this life with your pain and your suffering, right? If God's going to use it all, then I have to believe that I didn't work myself into something. Uh, Like I said, in my cohort, none of us have kidney disease in any part of my family or anything like that. But what I know is in this life, you will have, Jeff, and you have it. So what are you going to do with it? And do you realize the power of it? Because people are taking advantage of their pain and their suffering every day. Well, I need this medication. My back hurts. So I need this pain pill to help me keep myself in my induced coma that I'm living life in. Hey, man, that's between you and the Lord. But let me tell you something. God didn't give you back pain. (laughs) My dear sister, Melanie, if you're out there watching too, we're praying for you. God did not give you back pain to humble you and say, you did something wrong. He gave you back pain so that as you recover and continue to recover, what you can show is 18 years I've been sitting in that chair and 18 years I've been faithfully serving God in the back pain. And now we all get to pray Ecclesiastes 3 that there would be a new season of life, a new season of discomfort that's no longer part of it. Maybe the new discomfort is just I got two grandkids instead of one. Praying for all of you to really put things into perspective this morning. So I'm going to give you one final attaboy happy story. What do you want to do when you get upset? You want to get mad. Okay, I'm simple. I'll call the worship team back up here if you guys want to come up. (laughs) Have you ever heard of Candace Leitner? Church, Candace Leitner, anyone? Okay. She wanted to get mad. She had a beautiful 13-year-old daughter named Carrie. Carrie was minding her business, as many young kids do, one day when an individual who was distraught and not able to deal with the pain of life went drinking. And in that drinking state, killed Candace. It's happened many times before, and it will happen many more times again. But for Candace Leitner, the loss of her 13-year-old daughter put her in such a rage and such discomfort that she got mad. M-A-D-D all caps. Do you know what mad is? Mothers against drunk driving. She decided, okay, I'm going to take the pain and suffering that's somehow a value to these other people to make an excuse for living evil, and I'm going to repurpose it because God has asked me to go through it. I can never get my daughter back, but I might save someone else from losing their daughter or their son. She continued to put mad offices all throughout the United States as she started in a small little part of Irving, Texas, September 5th, 1980. The results, as recently calculated, of her endeavor of using pain and suffering for others is a 50%, considered 50% worldwide U.S. reduction in drunk driving since 1980. The results of that has been an estimated 450,000 lives saved from non-drunk driving accidents. And so what did she decide to do? Because now she has so many different offices, monetarily it started to grow. And she said, that's not the reason I started it. She then repurposed an entire whole new wing whose sole purpose is outreach to victims who have been impacted by drunk driving. Any family that has lost a loved one, struggling with funeral costs, struggling with mental health care, struggling with counseling, struggling with whatever, and now they have 
assisted 900,000 victims of drunk driving as they continue to look for reasons for MAD to grow. I'm not saying we don't have a right to get mad. Like I said, I come from a long line of alcoholics. I, I get it. But there's a way that God intended us to live and a way that God's asking us to live that's completely different than the world that we're living in and they need us to live like Christians. I'm not asking just the men who showed up here to be men of God. I'm asking the women to be women of God. I'm asking young women, old women, old, new, young. I'm asking all of us to make consideration. You might be the only Christian light this week that someone sees. What is your light saying? What is your pain and your level of discomfort in life allowing you to show or not to show to those people that are so desperately in need and watching? Are they seeing Jesus? Are they understanding that no greater love is this, that a man laid down his life for someone else? That we might be called friends, that we, that we might be called sons and daughters of the Most High. This is not just an honorable thing to do, church. It's the only thing to do. To every one of those widows in my presence and in ministry this morning, I offer you a severe condolence in saying, hey, I know they're gone and I know it hurts. I long like you do for that restoration. But I want you to know that right now in heaven, these guys are high-fiving and singing and dancing around. And I truly believe that even though Cookie was kind of sharing her thought with Ramsey, she said, we had this pact, you know, if he left and it was correct and it was all good, he was going to come tell me. I I share that. It's a personal insight. I share that with you because I think it's a blessed affirmation. Guys, we know where they are. They've never been more home than they are now. And as much as we want to make this world beautiful and stop the plastic trash and help the oceans, and we're killing off animals, we're killing off everything, it's all going to go away because it's going to be made anew. It's okay. And you and I can't stop what's been put in motion, but what you and I can stop is stop walking by the Philippian jailers that are in our lives. We can stop walking by these other people that God has purposed our pain and our suffering for, that we might use it for the glory of God that we could stop someone from taking their life and instead realizing. And what was the result? Him and his entire household comes to the Lord. That's what it's all about. And that's what we need to pray this morning. Father God, this morning, as we purpose our pain and our suffering to you, if there's anyone in this house who's been struggling with some form of adversity or just that thorn and they keep wondering like Paul if it's possible for it to pass if it's possible for it to pass then I pray in the name of Jesus let it pass but at some point father it just it hasn't passed I pray this morning father that the peace that passes all understanding that can only come from Jesus himself from the spirit of God would fall upon these brothers and sisters this morning I pray father for the redemptive and healing blood of Christ to once again Renew us to not be watered down or covered over, but simply to be appreciated for what it is. What can wash away my sin? Man, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, if there's someone in this building this morning that's just been taking that chance that, yeah, I'm going to do it one day. I'm going to make that decision. I'm going to make that profession. Father, I pray right now that today they would make that profession. Don't take another minute. Don't take another moment. You may not have it. Today, pray right now. Pray these simple words. Dear Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. 
I invite your spirit to live in my heart, making me a clean heart. Help me to know you. Teach me as I read your word. And may everything that comes from my mouth either be building up, Father, or be considering of the fact that everything we have is from you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and his death, burial, and resurrection. It's all that we hold dear. May we continue to purpose all that we have for the service of others. We ask this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. We're going to close with this song of gratefulness and thanksgiving. Thank you for the way that you love us, how you love us. Thank you for the
everybody have a great week and if you can help help with the christmas stuff if you're able-bodied come on up to the stage god bless you happy thanksgiving